0: Uh, As keeper of Special Collections here, it's my great privilege to be able to work with colleagues on um, the most fun part of our job, which is choosing what to acquire. And acquiring things uh, includes, of course, artists' books. Now normally when I sit down with my rare books colleagues and uh, we consider what we might want to uh, purchase, um, there's a lot of considered curatorial um, discussion or translated shoulder shrugging, eyebrow raising, um umming and ah ahhing, and uh, general um, debate. So things don't get through the door without being exceptionally good. And when we uh, were exploring collecting Russell's books, we fully intended to apply the same uh, rigorous um, standards in our assessment of his, of his books and judge each one uh, on its own merits. Actually, um, after the first couple of books, Uh, we realised that we weren't going to have to worry too much about bringing these into our collections. And uh, in fact, now we subscribe, so uh, everything Russell produces, we have. Um, I should say, going forwards, of course, there are um, some gaps uh, that we uh, want to to plug, but what we're aiming for is the most comprehensive collection of uh, Russell's uh, books um, that that we can manage. I did mention uh, to him at some point, I think, uh, what was happening to his archive, but the clever people at the Library of Congress have got there first. (laughs) Um, Russell is based in New York uh, and has published more than 50 artist books. Uh, He's currently working with the Type Archive in London on a new typeface for monophase composition casting, uh, which he's calling Hungry Dutch. The early results of this exercise... Uh, he will be using during his pres- present um, residency here um, at the Bodleian's uh, Bibliographical Press. We're lucky to have as our first printer in residence somebody whose books combine such amazing technical virtuosity, intellectual rigour and uh, beauty. Um, Russell, uh, the scheme that Russell is joining uh, was established thanks to the generosity of Lisa Baskin, um, who alas can't be here uh, this evening, but uh, we acquired from Lisa the um, archive of the Gehenna Press, uh, Leonard Baskin's Gehenna Press, and the room in which Russell is uh, calling home uh, for the next few weeks uh, actually houses one of Leonard's uh, Albion presses. Um, Russell has been kind enough to throw himself into all sorts of activities uh, here including uh, public seminars, uh, this uh, lecture, and, uh, importantly, teaching uh, in the English faculty here. He's helping me with uh, a graduate-level um, course on bibliography and book history. And I always use Russell's books in these sessions um, to alert students to the, the beauty of the book, the survival of the book, in a post digital age which Russell will explain to us Um, and it's just so fantastic that that this term we're actually going to have Russell um, talking to the students uh, themselves. So this evening uh, Russell will talk to us about uh, making third stream books in the post digital age and he has kindly agreed to take questions uh, afterwards. But I think without further ado, please help me to uh, welcome Russell.
1: Luckily, the light is bright enough, you can see me blushing. Um, That was a very nice introduction, Chris. Um, I know you all are wondering, dying with curiosity, what third stream books are, uh, which is why I came here tonight to uh, tell you about them. Um, And I won't uh, hesitate any longer, just dive right into it. except to say that it's hard to imagine being more honored to be anything as a printer than being the Bodleian Library's printer-in-residence, so thank you very much. Um, All right, in 1957, the composer Gunther Schuller coined the phrase third stream to describe musical composition that drew on both classical and jazz traditions. Rather than existing in mutual exclusion, Schuller saw improvisation and formal composition intermingling to create a new musical form. Twenty-two years later, the editor of Fine Print magazine, Sandra Kirschenbaum, appropriated Schuller's terminology to describe a new kind of book that was emerging, one that similarly drew on multiple traditions. In contrast to craft-diverse artist books such as Ed Ruscha's 26 gasoline stations, or more luxurious leave d'artiste such as the books of Matisse. Kirschenbaum described, the third stream of book art today is what might be termed printer's books for their creative impetus originates and flows not from the artist illustrator nor from the author publisher but from the printer the person who actually makes the book. They might also be termed typographic books for they draw not just on the heritage of the visual arts but on the entire heritage of the book as the principal conveyor of civilization via letter forms. Those signs and symbols refined and distilled over centuries to conform so perfectly to the cognitive faculties of humankind. Implicit within this definition is a call for the fine printer's relationship to text to change from one in which the printer was expected to honor the text into one in which he was expected to interpret it. Since the 1970s, the third stream book has developed from the purely typographic into more elaborate manifestations of text and image, <coughs> often going beyond interpretation into the realm of authorship, with the printer interfering with pre-existing texts to create new narratives. So as early examples of third stream books, we have William Everson's Granite and Cypress, in which he solved the dilemma of Robinson Jeffers highly irregular line lengths uh, by printing the reverse image of each poem on its following verso. This subtle but radical design decision reorients the visual focus to the center of the spread whereas two right reading poems would have resulted in a lopsided composition. So you can see when printing with a hand press he first prints the poem on a tympan without any sheet of paper, re-inks the Uh, type form, puts a sheet of paper in and prints, and simultaneously prints the poem right reading on the recto and wrong reading on the verso. Um, About the same time, Jack Stoffacher published his Phaedrus, in which he responded to the typographic problem of character names in a dialogue by separating the text so that Phaedrus always speaks on the verso, Socrates on the recto. And so, reading the book becomes a performative interaction with the speakers as one reads back and forth. Um, For more recent examples, oops. Um, Gaylor Xenilek's Lac de Pleur assembled multiple texts about an eight-mile stretch of the Mississippi River into a new single text. And edition Reese's edition of Invisible Cities, in which the Reeses and Jean-Pierre Hebert removed sections of Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities to create a new visual narrative. These books are now commonly described as fine press artist books, a somewhat clumsy but accurate appellation that I think just sounds a little less spacey than Third Stream. Um, But whatever the name, these are the kinds of books that I try to make. It is interesting and not, I think, coincidental that this new form of the book developed shortly after metal type foundries stopped issuing new metal type designs. Third stream books are unique among purportedly typographic books for deriving their typographic gestalt not from the introduction and proposition of new type designs, but by their innovative arrangement of pre-existing typefaces. If you consider the canon of the typographic book, Gutenberg, Jensen, Aldis, Baskerville, Bodoni, etc., the graphic content of their books was almost entirely dependent on their type design. And type design, it's important to remember, concerns itself with line, form, color, symmetry, and pacing. All considerations that are informed by the same aesthetic and technological conditions as the painting, music, literature, and sculpture of a type design's day. Type design, in other words, is a category of art history. And thus we have Gothic and Italian Renaissance typefaces, Mannerist and Baroque, Rococo and Neoclassical, Romantic and Industrial and modernist and mid-century typefaces. And in the more immediate cousins of the contemporary fine printer, the British private press, we again see books that are distinguished by the unity of their type design with the vision of their makers. Would the British private press have existed if the Kelmscott Doves, Ashendean, or Golden Cockerel books had been printed in the typefaces of the previous generation rather than those designed specifically for their books? I highly doubt it, Um, and yet for printers like myself, the majority of available typefaces were designed nearly 100 years ago. To give you a sense of how much time that is typographically, a mere 15 years separates the work of Gutenberg and Jensen, but if Jensen had printed in Gutenberg's typefaces, his books would have been graphically irrelevant. I've designed a handy graph to explain this. (laughs) As time passes from a type's design or revival, the form of that type gradually gradually loses relevance as graphic content as it moves out of the present art historical moment, requiring image and concept to supply more than their share of the content of a book. And I don't think it's going out on a limb to say that since metal type foundries stopped issuing new metal typefaces, third stream books and artist books in general, have in fact relied more heavily on image and concept for their graphic content. And so the third stream book seeks to find new ways to imbue the contemporary typographic book with graphic relevance. Okay. So all of these ideas must have been in the back of my mind when on November 30th, 1996, I was looking at this drawing by Rudolf Koch and Fritz Cradle and was suddenly possessed with a vision for a typeface for the book of Job. This vision created a number of problems. First off, this is the best case scenario of my handwriting. (laughs) Any of the talents one might imagine are necessary in a type designer, calligraphy, freehand drafting abilities, or even fine handwriting, I lack entirely. The other problem was that I had no idea how to design a typeface. But nevertheless, when I got out of bed the next morning, I already considered myself a type designer. I was young. Um, the bridge between my vision for Job and my ability to realize it was geometry, which is probably why Coke and Cradle's drawing had such an impact on me. There's a long tradition of drawing letters geometrically. Most popularly known are the geometric alphabets of the Renaissance that were reprinted in critical editions in the 20th century. But within the lettering community, geometric lettering is an eccentricity at best. Um, But you have to work with what you've got and geometry was my entree into lettering. In the end, I never completed a typeface for Job. Instead, I published a set of geometrically constructed Roman capitals. Uh, in an addition to manuscript, each of the seven copies of which contained the 26 letters drawn and painted by hand with the aid of compass and straightedge. Apart from initiating my, design of, my study of type design, the important aspect of the Job project was it started me off on the idea that letter forms are not simply conveyors of content. They are content, capable of communicating <laughs> sorry, flickering light, (laughs) capable of communicating textual narrative in their forms. And as soon as I began working on Job, my mind began to wander. What would happen if I combined the Greek and Roman alphabets into a hybrid? What if I reduced the old Athenian alphabet into distilled, nearly abstract forms? What in the aftermath of September 11th would a martyr's Roman alphabet look like? and what ultimately would happen if I designed 26 letters that were not meant to be combined into words at all, but rather were intended to provoke the viewer into reconsidering their presumptions about form. This is the D and F from Eclectic Geometric or Lunch with Nicolette. My penchant for odd titles goes way back. Um, This was my most elaborate, and as it turned out, the last manuscript I published. Each letter is drawn with pencil, blue liquid watercolor, pencil, blue liquid watercolor, India ink, and painted in gouache. 26 paintings in each of the 10 copies. And in case you were wondering, it's not a recommended publishing model. Um, And uh, eclectic geometric was more advanced than my previous alphabets in that it was not connected to a single text or idea, but rather was meant to be text. And to contain multiple readings simultaneously. In the same year that I finished Eclectic Geometric, I took my first stab at drawing letters on a computer for a commissioned edition of The Passion of Saints Perpetua and Felicity. The letter forms were inspired by a calligraphic sketch by the Dutch type designer Jan van Krimpen. But it's important to note that these letter forms are not type, they are drawings of letters pasted up together. However, I was now drawing the letters digitally, a method in which I would need to become proficient if I ever wanted to make an actual typeface. But shortly after completing Eclectic Geometric and Perpetua, the lights went out on my little enterprise, and I wouldn't make a book other than a pamphlet or two for six years. Ah, Which is a good place to take a moment and clarify some of my statements about letter forms that are typed and those that are not type. On the top left is a drawing that was the basis for the letter A in my typeface, Nicholas. As a drawing, this is the final form of this letter. It can be photographed, scanned, pasted up, but it is not in itself dynamic. Beside it is the digital drawing that I made based on this sketch. This drawing can be used to create a digital typeface or a pattern for a metal one. Um, At top right is a piece of type that was, in fact, cast from a pattern uh, 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 Sorry, from a matrix that was engraved from a pattern derived from that digital drawing. Although it might sound strange when I say there are no new typefaces for printers, it is important to realize that typefaces are technologically specific. We are living in the most active period of type design in history. But the typefaces or fonts that we see proliferating on our computer screens are not designed for printing letterpress, and they most often look terrible when done so. (coughs) Similarly, my typefaces are designed specifically to be printed letterpress, and they look terrible when reproduced on a screen or printed offset. Lines thicken when printed letterpress. They thin when printed offset or viewed on a screen. And so at the bottom left is a letterpress print of my Nicholas A. It is admittedly over-inked, but it gives a good sense of what I'm after, a thick, corpulent form that's reminiscent of the late Romanesque letter forms that inspired it. Uh, To its right is the same letter printed offset, a much wispier, thinner form, and not what I intended at all. Although ideally all of my typefaces would be metal, Of necessity, I print most of them from photopolymer plates that I make directly from film that is output from digital files. All right, so six years of darkness ends with a glorious dawn and I'm making books again. This is a spread from my edition of Henry David Thoreau's translation of Prometheus Bound. You might recognize a similarity with Jack Stoffacher's Phaedrus in that I separated the dialogue into left and right sides. But rather than the quiet aspect of Jack's book, I wanted my dialogue to look like barbed spikes, pinning the text to the page like Prometheus had been chained to the rock. For the title page, I once again drew drawing based on that von Krimpen sketch, but in the intervening years since Perpetua, my digital skills had developed to the point that I was more, able to, more easily able to get the line quality I wanted. Suddenly, drawing letter forms was easier. And a few months after finishing Prometheus, I was looking at the type of John Baskerville and realized that his original type was much more interesting than its 20th century revivals. Before I knew it, I was drawing his letters, but this time I was also putting them into a type design program so that I could set and print running text. 12 years after first thinking of myself as a type designer, I had designed my first typeface and used it to print medieval and Padua. This moment, the making of the Baskerville revival, flipped a switch within me and letters, alphabets, and typefaces poured out. I came up with the idea of making a new alphabet book following on the ideas of eclectic geometric, but rather than making a facsimile of one of my gouache alphabets, I wanted this book to contain letter forms that I could only realize on my printing press. The resulting book, Ethelwald, etc., follows the basic format of my manuscripts, a single letter on the recto of a spread. But each letter is also paired with a title drawn in a different lettering style, some of which are then also surrounded by cartouches. And in concert, these elements are meant to respond to literary, architectural, or historical moments that I detail in notes in the back of the book. So this is D for decorative depravity, O for one, R for Rambo, and T for truth. And the text running through there is the last stanza of Ode on a Grecian Urn, Beauty and all that. Um, the, uh, I summarized my alphabetical approach to Ethelwald in a short text called The General Unifying Theory, which I'll just quickly read to you. The 26 letters in Ethelwald, etc., are born partly of the belief that the communal form of the alphabet is as responsible for a letter's legibility as that letter's specific form. If, for instance, you encounter a portrait of Arthur Rambeau, you would not necessarily view it as an R. If you encounter the same portrait printed in an alphabet book following a Q and preceding an S, you would have no doubt that it was an R. Further, the disparity between the letter's contextual legibility and the form's alphabetic ambiguity might open a lane to a fresh appraisal of our typographic assumptions. The complex relationship between the letter and its form might also broaden our understanding of the relationships between communal responsibility and individual prerogative, free will and determinism, heredity and experience, though admittedly this is a stretch. Ethelwald etc., was my first ideal third stream book in that every line was drawn by me, the illustrations, the type, and the letter forms, fulfilling Sandra Kirschenbaum's idea of the creative impetus flowing entirely from the printer. It also sent me down a new rabbit hole of color printing, a subject that now rivals letter design and the attentions that I give it. In the year following Ethelwald, I designed quite a few typefaces. These are some of them. <laughs> Um, And these are some others. Um, And I next decided to make a type specimen that dealt with complete typefaces rather than individual letters. It really is that simple. I drew an A and then I drew an alphabet and then anyway. But uh, so Specimens of Diverse Characters was conceived also to allow me to further explore the color printing techniques that I began working with in Ethelwald. And so here is the Arthur Rimbaud page from Specimens. There's certain recurring characters in all of my alphabet books and he's one of them. Um, And I'll just work backward through the progressive proofs of how I got to this image. Everything but the type and the drop shadow is made from pencil sketches that I scan into my computer, output as film and make directly into printing plates. And so it's six, six layers in all. But specimens also initiated an unexpected new pursuit when working on the page for Harry Carter's pronouncement that type is something that you can pick up and hold in your hand. It occurred to me that it would be wrong to print this text from a polymer plate. Although we call digital alphabet designs typefaces, they lack the essential physical mass about which Carter was speaking. You can't pick them up and hold them in your hands. It had never occurred to me that it would be possible to make a new metal typeface, but by the time Specimens was done, I had made two, as well as two suites of metal type ornaments. Initially, this was done as an exuberant expression of making a type specimen. The deluxe copies of the book come with a form of the actual type in the box. But as I thought more about it, I developed a sense of urgency. My wife, Annie, is a photographer. When we started dating in 2006, she shot all of her jobs on film, using Polaroid Polaroid film as well for composition and focus. Only one magazine at the time insisted on digital files. Now, not only does Annie shoot all of her jobs digitally, the majority of films she used to use are no longer made. And the ones that are made are prohibitively expensive. The digital technology that I use to print letterpress from my typefaces is based on the photopolymer plate, and those plates are exposed using film negatives. These negatives allow me to work at a very high resolution, much higher in fact than most commercial letterpress applications require. Once those larger commercial forces figure out a way to sidestep the film substrate, the film I need to make my plates will no longer be made. Already in New York City, there's only one highly unreliable source of film negatives. Ten years ago, there were ten at least. What I realized when I made those first metal typefaces was that the older mechanical technology of uh, typefounding might actually outlast the digital technology of photopolymer plates. This was the first indication of a post-digital aspect that has recently developed in my work. Hmm. As I began preparing to work on my next large-scale book, I was unsure what I wanted to do, but I was clear that I did not want to make another alphabetical work so soon after Ethelwald and Specimens, so I began with an idea to subvert the alphabet, to make a book that would be alphabetical without anyone knowing it. I came up with the working title of 26 Propositions and planned to write short abstract texts inspired by alphabetical form and pair them with prints of dazzling colors. I had visions of 15 and 20 color prints. I related this idea to the printer Gaylord Shenilek one day as we walked over the Williamsburg Bridge into Manhattan. Gaylord listened patiently as I described the complexity I envisioned. And after I finished, he took a moment before saying, That sounds like a lot of work. Why not do 13 propositions? And all in a moment, I realized that there were 13 books in Euclid's geometry, elements of geometry, and that the theorems in Euclid are called propositions. It had never occurred to me that I had used geometry in my work for nearly 20 years, but I had never made a book explicitly about geometry. And before I knew it, I was working on Euclid. The book that developed Interstices and Intersections, or An in Autodidact Comprehends a Cube, consists of 13 Euclidean propositions, one from each book of the Elements. Euclid's Elements of Geometry is, in many ways, an ideal book for a book artist in that its content is equally dependent on word and image to be understood. The diagrams that accompany the propositions have been developed over centuries beginning in the manuscript era and crossing over into printed books. This text image parody has provoked a lot of experimentation and playfulness among printers, resulting in some of the most innovative and dynamic books of the last 500 years. My personal favorite is John Day's 1570 edition, in which he illustrated the stereometric diagrams in book 11 with paper fold-ups so that the reader could actually make the forms being described. Uh, There are also endlessly other inventive aspects to this edition. Um, And then of course there's the the very well known and thoroughly un-Euclidean edition of Oliver Burns from 1847. Worried that I might be too heavily influenced by my predecessors, I decided that my first step should be to make a 13 volume manuscript of the elements in which I proved each of the propositions. (coughs) The colorful paperbacks at the bottom of the image are the manuscripts arranged among some of the preparatory drawings for the project. Working through the elements in this way gave me a deeper familiarity with the text so that I could choose propositions with which I developed a personal relationship rather than those that I simply found visually compelling. So each of the 13 propositions in my book received two spreads with Euclid's text set in my italic and always shaped in a way that reflected the content of the proposition, and my companion text set in the Roman and only shaped if necessary. All, again, all of this is printed letterpress and the scale is 22 inches across. The idea behind the illustration was to present 13 different illustrative approaches, similar to how each book of the elements of geometry deals with a different area of geometry. Like eclectic geometric before it, interstices and intersections had a certain finality to it, as if it was the logical conclusion to the color printing that had dominated my work since Ethelwald, etc. To go further felt like it would only be a gimmick, this print is 12 colors. Anyone who's cranked a Vandercook press will understand that printing a 12-color print is not only physically exhausting, it can be excruciatingly boring. It is long, repetitive work that eventually you can feel less like creative work and more like drudgery, although the result is nice. Yeah. Shortly after finishing Euclid, I found a linoleum cut I made when I was 18 years old. And as I printed another large book project, I put a print of this cut on my side table and stared at it as I cranked away. Never had a single color been so alluring. Black ink. (laughs) It was as if I had made a discovery of some rare element. For a couple of years, I had been making sketches of linear letter forms, and in early 2015, I began cutting them into linoleum. The resulting book, Linear A to Linear Z, was the first entirely non-digital work I had made in nearly 20 years. But the images in it are anything but pre-digital. Instead, they feel post-digital in that they would not exist without digital technology, but they make no direct use of it. And so this is the B, the D, and the G from linear A to linear Z. I can't help thinking of my career as consisting of a series of headlong dives into brick walls, geometric alphabetical manuscripts, and then bam, you know, uh, photopolymer color overlay printing, bam. And like diving, the moment of commitment is instantaneous and absolute. But I often don't realize it has happened until I am in mid-flight. And this is where I find myself now. All of my work since Linear A to Linear Z has probed the relationship between the digital and the analog in different ways. For instance, this shows three iterations of the same print from my book, Some Problems with Red. The print is created from a random pixelation of metal type ornaments, combined with non-stable registration in the printing to produce unique prints from the same type forms. So here you see the metal type form of one of the random patterns and the yellow, green, purple, and one of the red forms in the final image. And so every one of these images ends up looking very noticeably different in the addition of a hundred. While this print from Ornamental Digressions, which I made the next year, um, uses similarly unpredictable methods to produce the final image. In it, my pinwheel ornaments are printed without being locked in place, so that with each pass of the cylinder, the pieces of metal type move on the bed of the press, resulting in unique prints. Both this and the red print try to explode the quadratic grid in ways that clearly benefit from digital technology, but their essential character is defined by mechanical accident. While on the type design front, I'm experimenting with different methods for using digital tools and processes to produce a new. T- uh, to make more precise analog materials. The most advanced of these projects is a collaboration with the Type Archive in London in which um, we are trying to produce a new typeface for monotype composition casting. And to this end, we've developed a working protocol in which we use digital masters and CNC routing to produce patterns in which the alignment and metrics are carried through from the digital type design file to the punch, matrix, and final piece of printing type. And finally, I've just begun work on a new massive book project, Character Traits, that will explore the relationship between digital and non-typographic lettering. Unlike my earlier books, these newer projects are difficult to speak about because the ideas that they are exploring are still developing. One of the more interesting aspects of looking back at my work and trying to connect it into a narrative is that the narrative is not the engine of the work. The narrative is formed in backward glances. I get obsessed with an idea or a process and once hooked, I just keep going with it until I can't go any further. I don't make books to fit into a narrative. I make them because I can't not make them. And I sort the bigger ideas out along the way. Thank you.